What's up, everyone? You're listening to the Sun Devil Source Report podcast. I'm your host, Mason Kern, joined as always by site publisher Chris Cartman, as well as reporters Jacob Render and Trevor Booth. Chris, the season is already over, despite kind of feeling like it, it just hit its groove. But before we kind of move on here, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Just the strangest season that there was or ever will be, probably, that we cover. Uh, it, it's It was like, it was, it was, I think I was talking with Jacob about this and other people about this recently. It was a four game season that felt like the longest season ever, if that even makes (laughs) sense. Uh, And so just super odd and very interested though, in talking about uh, both the Oregon state game for ASU and then also how they performed as a team and what they have on tap for next year and beyond. Right, kind of wrapping up this really just odd year overall. I mean, Jacob, it started out with us going to the seven spring ball practices, and then before you know it, I was back home in California in mid-March thinking this is this is really weird, and now we get a four-game season. But uh, how are you doing, man? Yeah, Mason, it's uh, I'm good. It's been, a, it's been a weird year, and yeah, Chris, Chris and I were talking about just how this season felt like the 14 weeks that you know a regular year is, and, and we felt like, these normal years where everything gets to this, into this groove once the season gets going, they really feel like seven weeks. So this was just an odd year. And I think that, you know, in a way I'm happy to move past it. And in some ways it's always sad when football season's over, but it, it's, it'll be good to recap it. And I think heading into spring ball is probably a next good step just to kind of put this year behind all of us. Yeah. And Trevor, you got to go to a couple games this year, uh, one, one at home and one on the road. So a little jealous of you, but, but how are you doing today? Yeah, Mason, doing good. Definitely experiences uh, to remember going to those two games and kind of seeing how everything unfolded and certainly echoing everything you guys said, just a whirlwind of a season with everything that went on, but certainly excited to, to recap it and kind of go through it um, in this podcast. Right, and we'll start with Oregon State, ASU's most recent and final game of the 2020 season as they've opted out of a bowl game as they announced after beating the Beavers 46-33 to in what was a, a cold, wet, December day in Corvallis, second year in a row, the Sun Devils traveled to Research Stadium to, to face Oregon State, and it was a pretty high-scoring affair, but it didn't necessarily start out great for ASU. Uh, it kind of was interesting. They started their first offensive drive with three straight passes when you would think and expect that the run game would get going early on, uh, and Oregon State goes up 7-0 immediately after that. They rely on the run game, but then Zach Hill and ASU kind of figure it out. They end up putting 375 rushing yards on the board and 514 yards of total offense en route to 46 points and a victory. But Chris, ASU was able to win this game without some of its key personnel uh, due to COVID-19 protocols and other reasons, Darian Butler, Johnny Wilson, Andre Johnson, Frank Darby, not there. And they also didn't have five members of their support staff. Can you kind of flesh out the details of of what all went down? 2020 went down, Mason, 2020. Um, Yeah, so they only one of those guys, uh, to my understanding, actually did not make the trip due to covid uh, what happened essentially is one uh, person on the team, uh, can't say who, but one player or uh, support staffer did test positive. Not sure if it was a false positive or a real positive, but did test positive once they got to uh, uh, Corvallis. And 
then because you have the contact tracing, everybody that that person was spent a lot of time with on the plane, sat next to, on the bus, uh, et cetera, uh, got, got hit on the, on the protocol. So um, it, it was, you know, a few important players, obviously. Uh, you look at the guys who weren't able to, to play. Darian Butler is a key linebacker, starter level player. Uh, Curtis Hodges, a key tight end. Um, so, you know, I think uh, when you have on top of that, um, Frank Darby not playing because of his personal decision uh, you know, and, and the injury to Kyle Horn from uh, the, the previous week, which is a, um, a, a broken bone in his foot that's going to sideline him for two to three months is what I'm hearing on that. So, uh, yeah, they, they, they were having overcome, uh, you know, quite a bit, uh, from a personnel standpoint. And then especially like the logistics of not having the roles that all of those support staffers do during games, um, was, was, you know, one of those sort of spontaneous challenges that they had to deal with. Right. And I mean, a lot of targets, for Jaden Daniels, who are not involved in this game, you mentioned Curtis Hodges, uh, a key tight end, a starter, multiple wide receivers who weren't playing in this game. And it and it led to ASU really transitioning and relying on the running game, much as it has throughout this season. Jaden Daniels only attempted 15 passes, was pretty efficient, completed eight of them, 139 yards and a touchdown in this game. But like I said, Jacob, 375 rushing yards in this game across six different rushers, six total touchdowns, uh, five rushers, excuse me, overall in the game for ASU. But what were just some of your, your main takeaways overall from this win for ASU? Yeah, Mason, it, it, you know, the biggest takeaway, like you said, it, it's got to be that running game. It's the second most rushing yards in the Herm Edwards era by an ASU team. The last time they ran for even close to this was actually against Oregon State in 2018. ASU ran for 396 yards. Uh, it was just, it was the second game in a row where Arizona State was fantastic on the ground. Rashad White uh, had 13 carries for 158 yards. He broke off uh, another huge run of over 50 yards. He had over four, he had four of those over the course of the season. Uh, his performance uh, jumped his season mark up to 10 yards per carry. And, you know, the ASU has, is not believed to have had a runner to be able to do that since at least 1955. The Rashad White did not get to the 50 carries mark on the season that is into the record book. So he was below the number. So even though it was a short season, it still probably stacks up among the best at ASU ever. Uh, Diamante Trainum continued to be extremely effective. Uh, and, and, and that's kind of been a theme over the last couple of weeks. ASU was also very good on the, on the ground against Arizona in the Territorial Cup. Ran for seven touchdowns, six the following week. So 13 of ASU's 21 touchdowns this season came in just the final two weeks, and all 13 of those came on the ground. And there were some mixed in through the passing game. Uh, Jaden Daniels had the long touchdown, uh, a long touchdown in both games in, to Jordan Porter against the Beavers, to Curtis Hodges against Arizona. But I think the, the theme here is that Arizona State found a way to be very effective on the ground when it didn't necessarily have the offensive personnel it was expecting to have uh, leading up to the game. Zach Hill even said that. He said that the COVID-19 scratches, the late, uh, you know, finding out late that certain guys wouldn't be available for the game changed his game plan. The weather also played into that. It was raining. It was cold. 
And basically all of that led to ASU feeling as though it needed to be very heavy on the ground. And that worked extremely well. So that's easily my biggest takeaway from that game. And defensively, Trevor, there was no, for either side, there were no sacks in this game after last year, it seemed like that was kind of a big theme, but Oregon state also had success both through the air and on the ground. I'm more specifically in the rushing game, put up 151 yards in the first half and finished with 250 rushing yards in the game. They did Mason. And going in, we talked about it in last week's podcast, how Oregon state tends to go to front, uh, to run friendly, heavier personnel groupings to try to open up holes. They got Jamar Jefferson in the backfield. And then they also like to open up plays with two receiver sets on the outside often when they go to max pro to try to get um, ASU or whoever they're playing to look into the backfield and then open up some of those routes deep and ASU had some struggles against the run in the first half. Um, Jacob was mentioning some players who were out due um, just and how that affected ASU's offense with Michael Matus out to ASU had some struggles containing the edge and stopping Oregon State on the ground. It had 151 yards rushing and it specifically had some success the Beavers did with a package for Jack Coletto, who came in at quarterback and had two touchdown runs, and they had a a lot of holes open out for him as well. Um, And so that was something that was kind of the theme throughout the game. ASU went with heavier boxes in the second half to kind of negate that and put a stop to Oregon State's rushing attack in the second half, and it did a much better job, I felt, um, of defending against the pass. Um, If you remember last year, Chase Lucas, Jack Jones, had some struggles with Oregon State's receivers when they went to their double moves um, in the open field, and they were much more disciplined in this game. Oregon State never really got to establish much with his passing attack, and granted that was two because it had several receivers out for the game. Um, but that were some of, those were some of the adjustments that went on defensively throughout. Right, and Chance Nolan finishes with 224 passing yards, three touchdowns, and an interception. Chris, how do you analyze how ASU performed on both sides of the ball in this game? Like Trevor said, some some real the real problem area, it seemed, was when Jack Coletto would come in and, and his wildcat and just ran all over the place on ASU. Yeah, so I think we knew from the outset of this season, Mason, that defensive end is a real question mark for this team. And then, uh, you know, when you, when you then take Amiri Johnson off the field all season due to the groin injury that he had, and then uh, in this particular game, Michael Matus didn't play. It really kind of thins you out. And um, the way that they're playing with the left and right ends, what I said before the year is you got to watch um, you know, how that sort of uh, uh, looks because you're either going to have guys who can maybe anchor, but they're not as athletic like a Shannon Foreman. And so you, they can't get out to some space and they, uh, you know, so, so that's a challenge, uh, but maybe they're better at stopping sort of the run right, right, you know, inside the line. And then you have the other option, which is put more athleticism on the field, but guys who are not able to, to anchor down. And that's where good, strong kind of edge run teams are able to kind of knock you back off the line of scrimmage and and, and beat you that way. So that we saw very clearly uh, uh, against Oregon State. And and the, the additional challenge that ASU has is they have tried all season to play with their base uh, four, two, five with that, that, that fifth defensive back uh, being a, a nickel corner type guy replacing a linebacker so that you're trying to get the best of both worlds where you're uh, you're effective 
uh, against the run, but then you also have more options in your coverage shells, more redundancy uh, in, in the secondary and how you cover. And um, that has that worked pretty well for them against uh, USC and UCLA, Arizona, you know, not really a competitive team. And then Oregon State, I think it was the, the, the team that presented them the most challenges with how uh, they are able to attack. And this co- ASU coaching staff has said pretty consistently that Oregon State's one of the toughest teams to prepare for with the, the different ways that they can attack you. And they have a lot of admiration for their, their scheme and, um, and, and how uh, they can basically run it down your throats, but then also beat you with some of these big shots that Trevor talked about there with the poor, poor, poor eye discipline coming into play. So um, not that surprised, especially because Jamar Jefferson uh, was out there and, 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 and playing and he's been a great back all well, since his whole career, really. Uh, and um, and so what ASU did is they just decided that they were going to commit extra defenders to the box, play more man coverage, except that they that Oregon State knew, would know what the type of coverage that they would be in and they'd be more man. And, and what I saw as, as um, a key thing in this game is that we talked about on the previous uh, on the preview podcast that when you when you don't have Isaiah Hodgins and and Noah Tagai and then you don't have uh, you know Taylor um, they they don't they were not nearly as dynamic at the wide receiver position had they been uh, I think we would have been talking about a closer football game you know Oregon State did score thirty three points but the game really did not feel. I guess, I mean, to me anyways, didn't feel like it was really that much in doubt uh, the entire second half. Um, and I, I felt like ASU could have scored 50 pretty easily uh, had it kept its foot on the throttle the whole time. But there are questions moving forward um, about this team's run defensive capability given the style that they want to play and the personnel that they not only have but will return next year. That's something we talked about before the year, and I'm sure it's something we'll be talking about all throughout 2021 going into next season. Right, and you mentioned 33 points for Oregon State. It really should have been at least a touchdown less because ASU gave up a a garbage time, zero seconds on the clock touchdown when Ben Goldbranson threw it up to Zariah Beeson, and he basically mossed Edward Woods, and it was, I think, I believe one of the Markham twins. Uh, you had for, two, uh, the ball went through two guys' hands. Right. What the they, heck? They got to learn to just bat it down. They're trying to go for the interception, and that was a similar thing we saw maybe in the in the USC game, although that was a little different as Markham was, that was like you know, bat you, it down. You know when a, that was like, you know when a bullet kills two people? Like <laughs> one bullet. That's what happened on that play. Literally. So it was a, Bullet killed two 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 people. I'm sure they got razzed pretty good by their teammates for that one. Um, what was more? What was the? What was a weirder play? That one, or when uh, basically two ASU players blocked the punt, including Will Schaefer, <laughs> who got credit for it, and neither one of them appeared to be touched. That's tough. I I would say the weirder play is the the punt block only because it's it's pretty rare for two guys to go through untouched and 
and just basically kill the punter. I mean, that dude was was afraid for his life when those two bullets were charging at him. But that touchdown at the end, that that's tough to give up, in my opinion. Can I insert another candidate into the weird play competition for this game? And sure, and just give go some, right ahead. I want to give some spotlight to the trick play that Oregon State ran. Oh, yeah. They got 46 yards on that pass on fourth down. That was an excellent trick play. And Chris, you can probably go into more depth on that than I can. But that belongs, in my opinion, at the top of the weirdest play of the game category because it was just, it was a great play. And I don't know. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I, you know, the, the ball went through the quarterback's legs, who was under center, to the, the deep set running back, who then threw a pass. I mean, there's nobody who's like in football, nobody's going to be training their eyes whatsoever on the running back when the quarterback is still under center. So I've never seen that. And I just was like, I literally, I've never seen that. And I was just like, kudos to or state because you're, you're going to get guys slipping all over the place when that happens. And, that that's you know the Oregon State had dudes running open in the in the secondary right and I'll throw another one in just because the the extra point attempt when ASU long snapper tosses it back Michael Turk can't hold it and then it's like a slip and slide as all the the Oregon State and ASU players try and, and try and fall on it and then Oregon State ends up recovering but doesn't doesn't do, that, go anywhere yeah. but that was a pretty funny play as well that ball this game had a few forty five yards. <laughs> exactly. that, yeah, that, that that was the most touches of a, of a ball you're ever going to have other than like a last second, you know, thing where they're lateraling. All over. <laughs> yeah, they're yeah. they're handing it off to try and make something happen. Yeah, that was a, a pretty wacky play. And then moment. there was also the long snap that went about 20 yards uh, by what was it, Eric Dickerson. I think it was Eric Dickerson. Um, yeah, that was a that was also a wacky play. The rain, you know, the rain brought brings a lot of those kinds of elements and ASU hasn't done well historically, as we've talked about a lot in the Pacific Northwest in the rain. So that that's sort of a, a positive sign for ASU that they still were able to, you know, stick with what had been working for them and, right. and, and put up a lot of points and get that done. But yeah, there was some wackiness. Right. And that's why they were a lot of ASU personnel and players were upset to have to travel back to Corvallis for the second year in a row when they had already gone last year and when Oregon State had already played four home games compared to ASU's one. But you went into the reasoning for that on the last podcast. One thing that was clearly evident was the the play of the secondary. The only turnover in this game was the interception, DeAndre Pierce picking off Nolan, and it, it kind of fell right to him. It was kind of a, a deep ball attempt in, in double coverage, and DeAndre Pierce just it fell right in his lap. So that was one that he'll he'll always hope to try and make it. Bad decision throw on games. that one. My gosh. Right. Well, it, it throw it back to the one game. I think it was UCLA. DeAndre Pierce waited for a ball this time. It didn't even really seem like he attacked it, but but it fell right in his lap this time instead of a another. Uh, receiver making the the catch but again this kind of plays into some more personnel losses for ASU with Shari Crosswell having been suspended and then leaving the team declaring for the NFL draft Chris he's not the only one now with Frank Darby also declaring for the 2021 NFL draft what are your thoughts on on that decision as well as uh, other potential ASU players who might forego eligibility and and pursue other routes well, first of all, just to be 100% clear, multiple sources told me 
that Frank Darby did indeed opt out. And in fact, it happened last Monday, the the, the Monday of Oregon State week. Uh, I talked to Herm Edwards directly, told him he, want, he decided he wanted to opt out. And, um, you know, then maybe had some second thoughts later on. But, and then, you know, I guess Doug Haller reported that Frank Darby told him that it was a family issue. I think that that's sort of not wanting to go out in a bad look kind of a way. And, uh, you know, I think you need to kind of own your decisions though. And uh, the most important thing here really is I think Frank Darby is making a big mistake. Uh, what is it that would lead Frank Darby to think, um, based on any like sound logical determination that he is anything other than a borderline day three uh, draft candidate. I just, it, it, it's not, it doesn't, it's not there. I mean, he had only, you know, whatever a half dozen catches or something this season. He had six catches for 46 yards and a touchdown. Yeah. I mean, wh- what is that going to do for you? You know, the, the questions that existed about Frank Darby last year um, and in, you know, to this point in his career, you know, are you going to be able to become a more versatile route runner, do more than just catch, you know, deep fades and, you know, go balls. Uh, They were not resolved. And, um, you know, maybe he got hurt against USC and that was, and then the the COVID thing happened and there were some unfortunate circumstances that, affected him and uh and the team more more broadly but the bottom line is uh you're you don't decide when you're ready for something in life okay you you can decide to commit fully to trying to make yourself ready right but being ready is is it, it happens when you're ready it's not just like oh i'm ready no frank darby is not uh he does not have the type of film that's going, there's a, there, wide receivers, man, there are a ton of great wide receivers that go on to the NFL draft. Very, very talented guys. And Frank Darby also, uh, as you guys know, is not a dynamic, proven kickoff or punt returner or special teams player. And what happens when you get down into that third day of the NFL draft, which there's no way he's a day one, day two guy. You get down to the third day, what people are looking for is what else do you do for us? And special teams is like big, like what have you demonstrated really? You know, maybe he can be a kickoff guy. I don't know, but we haven't really seen that. And so, you know, no teams are going to like go by that. But now, he's stupid swole, Chris. <laughs> yeah. But listen, I mean, listen, he, the guy, I, I don't want to like knock him too hard because you guys saw every single day that guy shows up on level 10 energy, like n- almost nobody, like has the type of energy and it, trying to like psych up his teammates and, you know, be infectious with like all that stuff is great. It's great. Right. I think every single day he has a positive attitude when he goes out there and that's something that's worth emulating, but also that's a reason to, you know, be realistic and say, I probably should come back and play another year. I think the kids that, that, that like Ashari Crosswell, he's not going to get drafted. You don't get basically demoted and then suspended and then leave 
after you really only played two seasons of college football and then go get drafted high. Like that's very rare. You, so I, I, I like these kids are making decisions that are going to impact the rest of their lives. And, and they've worked so hard and so many hours and years to get to this point that you have to basically make the right decisions in that last key year to two years to, you know, for that to happen. Now, let's take this on to the other players because I think you asked about that or I'm sure we're going to ask about that. Um, Jack Jones would be smart to return. He'd be smart to put, take his hat in his hand, go into Herm Edwards and say, coach, uh, you know, I messed up. I got suspended. Uh, You know, I I have a checkered past already. People are going to see that. I, I need to prove over the course of a full year that I can be really consistent and that the, 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 the negatives that people, you know, see about me are, are, do not overweigh the positives. Okay. I don't know if he's going to do that. I, I you know, the, the indication is he's more, more likely to, to leave than return to ASU. I don't think he should leave chase Lucas. This guy's improved dramatically in the last two years. Uh, he was brash. He talked too much. He gave up too many big plays, uh, as a sophomore after a super promising freshman year, uh, junior year, you know, there were still a little bit too many instances of that. I, I, I see a guy who's physically developed. He's stronger. He's bigger. Uh, he is more dialed in on every play basis. I think he was one of ASU's best defensive players. I think he will get drafted if he leaves after this year, but he is a guy who has uh, at least day two, you know, th- second, third round NFL draft upside if he returns to ASU. And we're talking about millions of dollars of difference, right? We're, you end up, in, you know, uh, five to seven, teams are much less incentivized to keep you. You have to be perfect in camp. Uh, you can linger around on practice squads, bouncing around. It's very, very difficult. We've seen it a thousand times. Chase Lucas coming back another year. He moves, he moves up probably at least to maybe the fourth round, if not higher, uh, with the type of season that I think he's capable of having. Now he's talking about multiple millions of dollars, um, and, uh, and, and teams are much more incentivized to try to keep a guy like that on the roster and, and, and give it the time to allow it to, to develop. A lot of people have said to me, well, Chris, he's going to be 25 or whatever, 24, 25 by the time he's playing in the NFL. It doesn't matter to, to NFL teams. They're not planning on having a fourth-round pick uh, six years after they're, he's drafted. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's what are you going to be able to do in the next few years to help our football team. And I think Chase Lucas is trending in a really great direction. He's, there's been such positive growth that I think he would be smart to return. Um, you got these other guys that I think are, you know, they, they might flirt with the idea of leaving Evan Fields, uh, Kellen Deesh, uh, Merlin Robertson, even though he's a junior, all those guys should be coming back to, to play football at ASU. I understand Merlin, people are talking about Merlin Robertson, like he's a top 10 linebacker in this class. And he's got a lot of buzz because he was a what was he the co-freshman defensive player of the year in the Pac-12 or defensive player of the year in the Pac-12 as a freshman fresh for freshman. Yeah, I think it was just year, him. Two years ago. And he had a lot of buzz. He was at the top of ASU's recruiting class. And you know, so there's a lot of like reasons why. But you turn on the film 
he's an improving player. He's definitely getting better. His body composition was good. I saw a little bit more uh, agility, mobility, flexibility to his game this year, but there's still lots of areas where he's not ready. He's not ready, uh, um, you know, from a, uh, just a brute strength, physically taking on blocks, getting off of them, getting back to the football, identifying uh, um, you know, misdirection type plays, not ready from a coverage standpoint, not ready. So he's not going to be a, a day one or day two guy. So I understand he has two kids and there's a lot of sort of concerns about financially, whatever. I think he should be back, though, because he's probably a day three person. Kellen Deesh looks like maybe ASU's best offensive tackle prospect in many years, which that's a, a surprisingly positive development for a guy who went four years at Texas A&M, could not see the field. I think that dude has a chance to be uh, uh, a very high-quality backup uh, offensive tackle in the NFL, maybe even starter potential in the NFL. Uh, it's at a position where there's a lot of demand at left tackle, and but four games of good film, even though it was pretty good film, probably not enough to, to make that happen. I think he has a, the ability to really uh, uh, help his cause. Evan Fields, very good athlete, uh, tackles per game, one of the leaders in the conference. Uh, he's trending in the right direction. I think he has a chance to stick if he goes somewhere probably not going to get drafted certainly wouldn't hurt his his cause by coming back here who who have i missed that is important to talk about now there are uh at least in the sanctuary people asking about rashad white uh you you guys know running backs they they do not get drafted high you might have four or five running backs that go in the in, in the first two rounds in any given draft this is another draft just like almost all of them where there are plenty of good running backs who are very established, extremely athletic and potent. I understand Rashad White averaged 10 yards per carry. That's freakish. Uh, we might not see it again in our lifetimes, but um, the body of work in four games and two of those coming against literally garbage run defenses in Arizona and Oregon State, uh, it's not enough. He, he's not going to be he, – he's another guy who probably can help his cause to the tune of – a million, two million, three million dollars, literally by coming back to school for one more year. So he really should be be back. Chris, I'll I'll, I'll throw three more guys into the hat just so we can wrap up this conversation. Jermaine Lowley, Michael Turk, Tyler Johnson are three other guys I think should probably be at least discussed. Well, um, I think that's a good point. Um, Michael Turk, you know, I don't know what he's going to do, but. He might have been the best punter. He was the best punter in the Pac-12. Might have been the best punter prospect in the country. He's certainly up there. But there's only one or two guys punters drafted in any given year. And uh, the, the, the things that he needed to demonstrate this year were precision on his shorter field kicks. And he put too many into the end zone and not exactly located where you want him to be. So there's still some questions, I think, about his game. He indicated sort of hinted on social media that he might be back to ASU next year. So we'll see. Tyler Johnson has been a guy who's vacillated an awful lot over his career about just his enthusiasm uh, for continuing to play football, given the injuries and just the grind of it. And he's been very candid about that, but I think he had the most fun he's probably had playing football this year. He's in a very good role. Robert Rodriguez is a particularly well-suited coach to to mentor him and get him ready for the next level i guys i've been saying for 
the whole time that Tyler Johnson's been at ASU, he's one of their best NFL prospects, but it hasn't, it hasn't really uh, translated to the field from a, from a full productivity standpoint until this year. And it did. And if he comes back, I think he has a chance in a full season to be one of the top pass rushers in the country from a, a sacks tackles for loss quarterback hurry standpoint in an athletic body at 275, 280 pounds. I think he, you know, will do nothing but help his cause uh, uh, to return next year. Uh, is that all three? I got all three, right? Yeah, you did. And you uh, mentioned- Lole. Oh, Lole. Pardon me. Sorry. Yeah. So with, with, with Jermaine Lole, I mean, that guy is, is a little bit different than some of the others in that I don't think that he has the, the, the ceiling of some of these other guys as you, as you look to the NFL uh, like a Tyler Johnson or like a, maybe, you know, Rashad white. Uh, but he is somebody who already squeezes out a huge amount of his capability to where I don't know that he has a lot more to squeeze out. And I don't know that he has a lot more to really improve his stock. Maybe he will. This was obviously the first year where he played inside at three tech and he only got four games He's a dominant football player. I mean, he's a underappreciated, uh, you know, hard hat guy, you know, d- never going to get a lot of the sort of respect that he deserves due to the position that he plays. But, you know, I, you know, I don't think he's a, I don't think he would get drafted in the top four rounds, five rounds. I don't know if he'll get drafted next year in the top four or five rounds. And so that's a consideration that you have to make. Um, but again, he's only, this is, was only his third year on campus today. So he only played four games this year. And Robert Rodriguez is a, is a very positive guy uh, in his development. I do like Jermaine Lole's um, uh, schematic versatility projecting to the NFL because he can play uh, end in uh, an odd front. And he can play strong side end in 4-3 defenses, and he can play three technique. So he has scheme versatility. He's already demonstrated that. That's one of the best attributes that he has. Very good with his hands. He's powerful. He plays run and pass effectively. He was bodying guys against Oregon State. Uh, I mean, he is, without question, one of ASU's top three or four football players on the roster overall right now. Um, So I just you can't say enough about him. But I just don't know that he's going to really significantly improve his draft stock. I don't, is that a consideration for him? Maybe he just wants to come back with his boys and have a great season in what looks to be ASU's uh, best football team since at least Todd Graham's back-to-back 10-win seasons. Right, and earlier you bring up Kellen, Kellen Deesh and his great season in just four games. He was the second-highest-graded offensive tackle in the Pac-12 per PFF's rankings, just behind USC's Elijah Vera Tucker. And he came to ASU in large part because of his relationship, his prior relationship with Dave Christensen uh, from his time at Texas A&M. And Dave Christensen yesterday, as we're recording this on December 22nd, on December 21st, last night, he announced that he's, uh, he's retiring. So Chris, how does ASU look to fill that vacancy? Uh, obviously, because it's something we've been expecting for a while now. Yeah, and that's a key point, right? Um, we were telling people literally a year ago that this was going to be Dave Christensen's last year. It might not have been out there on Twitter or whatever, and that's why you got to be in the double sanctuary with all the hardcore ASU fans, but we knew this was coming. Um, 
you know, he, he's coached for, for about 35 years. He's not that old of a guy. He's, he's like, you know, only 60 or something, but started pretty early in his career. Was was a college football coach by the time he was like in his mid twenties, actually. And uh, which is pretty rare, especially, you know, offensive line. But so he, he's been coaching pretty, pretty consistently since 1986. You know, he was a head coach at Wyoming for a while. So he's, I'm sure stocked some money away. Duke guy is like obsessed with playing golf. Uh, and he's lives up in the the Northwest Valley, you know, where a lot of retirement people live and, and, and play golf and enjoy it. He's earned it. And I would just say this dude uh, is, he is a hell of a football coach. It, you talk about, there's nothing that opponents are, are, are throwing at a guy like Dave Christensen that he doesn't understand and have the ability to adjust to on the fly. And from a protection standpoint, and from a understanding what they should be doing from a run blocking standpoint against certain opponents, that is really invaluable. We have seen uh, throughout the years uh, lots of coaches who they they were lacking in that area, and the 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 damage that that inflicts upon a team is it, it can be catastrophic. And also, I would say that I think he's probably underappreciated as a skill development coach. Uh, I think he I think he did a very good job in that respect. You know you know. You know, his, the, the, the best attribute of him is just probably scheme and understanding what teams should be doing and why and how. But uh, the player development, also really good. What's going to happen moving forward? Well, I think the conventional wisdom, the, 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 the common sort of thought is that Kevin Mawai has been greased and ready for this role uh, as an analyst. Uh, he's, he's a pro football Hall of Famer. You don't really have like hardly ever – uh, a guy like that's just waiting in the wings as an analyst. But there are some concerns that I and others uh, have about uh, his, uh, his, his uh, doggedness and intensity as a recruiter. Uh, Kevin Wise, a, a, um, you know, he's so established and he's got a lot of money and he's been so successful in his career that sometimes guys like that, they don't have the same competitive drive, hunger, passion as younger people in the recruiting arena. And at the end of the day, it really is uh, a emotional game in recruiting. It, it, it's convincing these kids that you care about them the most, that you want them the most, that, uh, that nobody's going to work harder to, to, to uh, to help develop them and build them and have a relationship with them and all that. And, uh, and, and that actually becomes more difficult from a time uh, a, a, a sync standpoint once you become uh, a coach because now you have all these other responsibilities that you didn't have as an analyst and that shrinks the amount of time that you have available for recruiting. So if you're not knocking it completely out of the park as an analyst, as a recruiter, and I don't think Kevin Mawai knocked it out of the park. I mean, he did okay. But uh, ASU missed on tons of its top offensive line recruits over the last couple of years. Part of that, of course, is Dave Christensen. You know, he's not, uh, you know, he was no, knew he was retiring, wasn't really involved at all in recruiting 2021 class. But, you know, that's why you need to have a sense of urgency. And my understanding is that, you know, even though the conventional wisdom would be that, okay, Kevin, why you plug him in? He's really great friends with, with Herm Edwards. They've been doing this for a long time together. He, he, he played center for Edwards and they have a great relationship. My understanding is that there are other candidates that are going to be considered. And it's not just like a, an obvious plug and play thing with Kevin Moy. 
And in the 2021 class, I mean, we've seen with the assistance of Adam Brenneman, Antonio Pierce, and others, ASU really target the offensive line in their recruiting efforts. And they've they've had or they've gotten the commitments and a couple signatures of a couple kids who look to be good offensive line prospects, Chris. Yeah, I mean, I think Adam Brenneman is a, is a, a superstar recruiter in the making. And when that's the case, you want to try to do everything that you can to hold on to him. Now, obviously, you can't coach offensive line. Right. It was a t- you know, it was a tight end. Uh, ASU's also struggled recruiting tight ends, including this year. Thought they were going to flip Jermaine Terry from Cal. Didn't happen. Didn't sign a tight end. Last year, there are two tight end uh, guys that they added. Uh, uh, Ryan Morgan and uh, pardon me, who's a kid from Jake Florida? Ray. Jake Ray. Yeah, sorry. Um, th- th- both of them were at the bottom of ASU's uh, uh, classes. I evaluated it. And the tight end position, obviously, super important uh, in this Sack Hill offense. We saw the additions that they had. Kyle Horn and, uh, and John Stivers really pay dividends for them during the season. And uh, so I think there's questions there. Like Derek Hagan, okay, like you're going to have to get it done in recruiting. Uh, otherwise, you know, I mean, like it's, it, it, you know, it, it, you got to get talent. You got to have talent. So uh, I, I'm, you know, I'm focused on like what's going to happen. Is, is they going to find a way to keep Brendan in? I'm, I'm focused on uh, what's going to happen, you know, with their offensive line situation. Uh, I do think that they're in a much better place overall with their offensive line talent than they were say two years ago, they have a bunch of younger guys. Uh, but, but, but Ben Bray and Jacob Nunez also were kind of at the bottom of that class that they signed. Um, so, so that's why they needed to add a, a bunch of guys. And I think they're still, you know, in line for a couple more that they haven't announced yet. And then they probably going to get a, a grad transfer offensive lineman. But if we see uh, Henry Haddis, who we meant, haven't mentioned earlier, but he probably is not, doesn't have an NFL future. So he might decide to come back, play another year. Kellen Deesh might decide to come back and play another year. Kay Coe's already been in ASU six years. We'll see if he decides, you know, another year or not, he might hang it up and move on we'll see but uh they are you know like ben scott i don't think he gave up he got hurt against uh, oregon state i heard it's not a very serious knee injury uh not an acl not something that probably needs surgery should be available for spring ball i don't know that he gave up a sack all year kelly deesh probably did it donovan west is is looking like a three and done guy they have others that are coming up and, and waiting in the wings, but they, they still need, that's a position that if you take your eye off of it or you're not every single year adding quality talent, it, it can, it can fall off in a hurry. So they, they, they need to be very mindful of that. It's one of the key areas I would say that is going to determine the success of Herm Edwards. I, I think you got to try to do everything in your power to keep your top recruiters, you know, the Antonio Pierce, Chris Hawkins, Prentice Gill, or, if you lose anybody like that, that you are, that you are reinfusing, uh, you know, and, and uh, you know, the scheme's very important that you are maintaining what you're doing in that regard. And then after that, it's making sure that your offensive line recruiting uh, continues to improve because everywhere else, they really look good right now. Right. And we've seen an emphasis placed on that, at least in this cycle, uh, just via the offers to offensive linemen, their push 
nationally around the country, but we'll have more on their recruiting efforts in a subsequent premium podcast that I'll be dropping later before the new year. But Jacob, as we look at this season in review by the numbers, starting with the offense, how just generally and broadly did ASU's offense perform relative to the rest of the conference in its four games this year? Yeah, Mason, ASU had a very solid season offensively. They finished first in scoring offense at 40.2 points per game. Uh, They finished first in total offense at 458.5 yards per game. And then uh, something I recently wrote about, they finished first in rushing offense at 264.2 yards per game uh, between Daniel Gata, uh, Diamante Trainum, and Rashad White. Uh, Those guys accounted for nearly 55% of ASU's total offense this year. So all three of them were very good. Obviously, Trainum and White uh, were fantastic over the course of the season. Gata played more towards the end with the Territorial Cup in the game versus Oregon State, but he was also uh, very effective uh, yards per play on offense. ASU had 7.1. That was also first in the Pac-12. Uh, turnover margin, ASU was first in the Pac-12 at plus eight. It was a very good season for ASU offensively, and I think that that's you know, just something worth highlighting, particularly in the first year of Zach Hill implementing a new offensive scheme. Chris has talked about it extensively, how ASU had an extended period of time due to COVID to really go over that scheme and get it down before the season actually started. And that looked like it really played into their benefit. Uh, You know, they really turned it on at the end. It was the game against Arizona, the game against Oregon State that really benefited Arizona State in the scoring department. They scored uh, 136 combined, sorry, excuse me, 116 points between those two games alone. Uh, Obviously, that's going to provide a massive boost. Uh, one thing that should be noted, ASU doesn't really show up very high up in the conference in terms of its passing numbers. And that can be deceiving. Some people might look at that and go, oh, that's a problem. Is that a a regression in terms of Jaden Daniels? No, not really. ASU didn't need to throw the ball that much in the last two games of the season. Like we talked about earlier in the podcast, Zach Hill even said it, they, they needed to go or they wanted to go heavily on the run, whether that was because of weather, the score, uh, uh, you know, a number of things factor into that. And then the amount of passing volume in those types of games is not going to be as high. So if you're just going to look at where Arizona State ranked in passing yards per game or how Jaden Daniels stacked up against some of these, you know, Pac-12 peers in terms of his total yards this season or his passing touchdowns, uh, that might be a little bit misleading because Arizona State was excellent on the ground. They didn't really need to throw because of how excellent they were on the ground. So Overall, it was a fantastic season offensively for Arizona State, but particularly in its run game. So that's a great recap of how ASU performed offensively, like Jacob said, in its first season, albeit abbreviated under offensive coordinator Zach Hill. But defensively, Trevor, in the four games we got to see ASU play this season, how did they perform statistically? Yeah, Mason, like Jacob said, ASU had a schematic change on the defensive side of the ball, too. Um, with Marvin Lewis and Antonio Pierce as its co-defensive coordinators after Danny Gonzalez and Tony White each departed, leaving behind the 3-3-5. And with this scheme, ASU specifically hoped that would improve its pass rush with more four-down linemen and more vertical pursuits of the football and also give its secondary more opportunities, too. They had four quality guys back there at the beginning of the year who they felt each had had all Pac-12 potential um, and, and despite the abbreviated season that everything that went on within it, um, like its offense, ASU had the top ranked scoring defense in a Pac-12 at 23.2 points per game. And it also tied Utah for the most turnovers forced with 13, despite playing just four games. Now, 
a lot of that had to do with the seven it forced against Arizona. And then the early, I think it had three or four, it posted against USC as well. Um, but a good season overall for ASU's defense. I think moving forward, some of the things that Chris mentioned earlier in the podcast, ASU is going to have to get better, especially against stopping the run. And then it had some struggles again on third down, which was a bit of a similar theme to this year. Um, looking at the run, it finished with the number nine rushing defense in the Pac-12. It allowed 183.2 yards per game. And Oregon State was really able to exploit ASU in the game over the weekend, as we've discussed, just because of how it was able to attack the edges with ASU's depth at defensive end. That's not to the point where it would like to be yet. Um, turnover margin was a big thing for ASU last season, though, was another common theme we saw. And they actually led the nation um, in turnover margin this year. Again, that had a lot to do with Arizona game, but another positive step was something it was able to do last year with a lot of the fumbles it was able to force. And then it had more interceptions this year. Um, and even though it finished ninth in the Pac-12 in passing defense, ASU did, it had a much better mark in pass efficiency um, with a rating of 150.3 this year which was good for third of the Pac-12. Um, if you guys look at the course of the season, a big reason that ASU had um, a lower ranking in pass defense is because Keaton Slovis had 381 yards for USC on 50-plus passes. But other than that, um, an opponent against ASU didn't have more than 227 uh, passing yards in a game. Um, third down defense, if you look at that, that actually got slightly worse from last year. Um, ASU's opponents had a 44 0.9% success rate against it on third down. And there were some key moments throughout the season. You look at the USC game and then also the fourth down opportunities it allowed in that game that allowed the Trojans to come back and win late. So that's something that ASU would like to see improved in the future. And it also pressured the quarterback better. Um, we mentioned that's the season that Tyler Johnson had. ASU had nine sacks as a team this year, which would have been on pace for more than it had last season. So overall, some growth um, in some key areas. And, you know, I'm sure ASU is very happy that finished in the scoring defense department, that number one, and then also the turnovers it was able to force. And then just some things looking forward to the future, solidifying the edges in the defensive line is going to be key uh, for the next couple of years in Herm Edwards' tenure. Right, and we'll go more in-depth on ASU's personnel moving forward, how the team's young players looked in game action this year, especially considering you guys, Will Schaefer, freshman linebacker, winning Pac-12 Special Teams Player of the Week for his efforts against Oregon State, had a punt block, as we mentioned earlier, among other things. And we'll also get into recruiting and staffing changes in a subsequent premium podcast that once again is going to be, dro be dropping before the end of the year. So make sure you be on the lookout for that. But for now, that's going to wrap up this edition of the Sun Devil Source Report podcast for Site Pro publisher Chris Cartman, as well as staff reporters Jacob Rudner and Trevor Booth. I'm your host, Mason Kern, saying so long. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.